Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Those of us in the Bay Area have almost certainly seen a building designed by Julia Morgan, one of our area's most prolific and best architects. She was a groundbreaking woman in a field that to this very day remains dominated by men. From her first commission, the Campanile Bell Tower at Mills College, to the Arts and Crafts, Asilomar, and the Gothic and Moorish Berkeley City Club, the Oakland-raised architect created many of California's most distinctive buildings. That includes, of course, Hearst Castle, which dominated the later years of her career. We'll talk about her life and work with the author of a new book, Julia Morgan, an intimate biography of the trailblazing architect. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Julia Morgan is best known as the architect of the opulent, eccentric Hearst Castle, But she designed roughly 700 buildings in her 50-year career. From the very first time I saw the gorgeous pool at the Berkeley City Club, I was taken by the gracefulness of her work, the way the arches of that space work together with the beams and the ceiling and the windows along one edge to deliver this feeling of sanctuary, serenity, beauty. But despite the quality and quantity of Morgan's work, For most of the last century, she has not received the sort of critical or popular attention one might expect. That is changing, a bit at least, and the latest sign is the publication of a gorgeously illustrated book by our guest this morning, Victoria Kastner, who was the official historian at Hearst Castle for 30 years. The title is Julia Morgan, an intimate biography of the trailblazing architect. Welcome to the show, Victoria. Thanks, Alexis. So can we talk about how many barriers that Julia Morgan broke through? Like it feels in reading your book like she was almost the first woman to do almost everything in architecture in California. Well, I agree with you. It it seems like she was always the only woman kind of on every building site or every in every group photograph that we have or you know wherever she went, she pretty much was the only woman. And what do you think was special about Julia Morgan? that allowed her to navigate this extremely sexist world? Well, she had a remarkable amount of drive and dedication as well as um, intelligence and um, creative ability. And she just didn't believe that anything was impossible. She also put a great story in the fact that she was a Californian. She said, I consider myself very fortunate to practice architecture in the area where I grew up because most of the great architects that we think of in the first part of the 20th century, Alexis, were 
uh, at, you know, transplants. Mm-hmm. Um, Bernard Maybeck and John Galen Howard were New Yorkers. Um, the Green brothers, Charles and Henry, were who who did buildings in um, the South Bay as well as in Berkeley. They were born in Cincinnati, grew up in St. Louis. So she really was a native Californian. She was born in San Francisco and then grew up in Oakland. And I think she had a special appreciation for her state, the landscape, the history of the area where she worked. Yeah. You know, I think it's fair to note that she did have a tremendous amount of uh, privilege in her life and a lot of financial resources and cultural resources via her family. Tell us a little bit about that background and, and how she grew up in Oakland. That was true. She was uh, raised really around beauty and she was raised in some affluence. Her parents were both um, Easterners. They'd grown up uh, in Brooklyn Heights, married there and then uh, settled in California. And her uh, maternal grandparents were quite wealthy. Her grandfather uh, was a cotton broker before and after the Civil War. And while her mother had a lot of drive, um, her father had a lot of um, enthusiasm, but he wasn't always a uh, uh, successful at you know turning it into actual um, events. He was un- unsuccessful as a businessman, and so she, her, her family were often financed actually with assistance from her maternal grandparents. Mm. And her educational background, right? She goes to Berkeley and studies there. But the big feels like the big change in her career comes when she gets put through the gauntlet of elite French education. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, she went to Oakland High School and thought about medicine and thought about music, but she loved architecture, and her second cousin had married a famous architect in New York. His name was Pierre Lebrun, and his MetLife Tower building still exists on Madison Avenue in Manhattan. So she decided to study architecture. She went to Cal Berkeley, but at the time, she enrolled in 1890, there wasn't an architecture department, so she graduated in civil engineering. And after she graduated, she met a man I just mentioned, the brilliant architect, Bernard Maybeck, Mm. uh, who did so many things in the Bay Area, but I like to think of him as uh, the person who gave San Francisco its Eiffel Tower, you know, the Palace of Fine Arts, that magnificent Mm. rotunda and colonnade and lagoon that were built for the 1915 World's Fair. So she was doing, um, taking art classes at at Mark Hopkins uh, Institute of Art, which is where the Mark Hopkins Hotel stands today on Nob Hill. And he was teaching there after she had graduated from Cal, and he saw her ability he had, he had gone to the world's finest school for architects. It was called the École des Beaux-Arts, the School of Fine Arts in Paris. Mm. It had been founded in 1648, basically as a feeder school for the artisans who would be the future builders of Versailles. But it had never admitted a woman. And since uh, Maybeck had graduated from there, he told Julia that he thought she had the ability to apply and do her studies there. Mm. And what does that education end up doing for her? I think it changed everything in her life. He knew there was a a, a rumor afoot because he'd stayed in touch with his um, classmates and former professors that they were going to admit women to the sculpture and painting departments, but nobody had even thought about the idea that a woman would apply to architecture. And um, when she did arrive in Paris, which was uh, in 1896 when she was 24, she did what um, people did at that time. You joined a studio called an atelier and you practiced because the um, rigorous examination was so difficult that you had to spend a lot of time preparing for it. And even in that studio, of course, she was hazed. Um, she wrote to her, her relatives, uh, the architect Lebrun and his wife Lucy. She said about the other men in the atelier, she said, 
One of them is very gentlemanly, but the others could have been replaced with no difficulty. (laughs) (laughs) So she was harassed from the very beginning. It was said that she had water poured over her head. She was pushed off the ends of benches. This was a place that was full of 20-year-old Frenchmen, you know, and the hazing had been a tradition for literally centuries. But what you learned to do uh, was to um, enter competitions. And these competitions were really rigorous. You were given an assignment, um, and it was, say, uh, design a, a, a war memorial. Then you were locked in a room for 12 hours, and you had to make a sketch uh, and then turn it in. And six weeks later, you came back with these intricate, detailed, elaborate, and enormous drawings. And if in plan section and elevation, and if in any way your drawings veered, diverged from what you had initially done in the first 12 hours, you were eliminated for competition. And competition was the way both that you entered the ACOL by uh, mm-hmm. passing the classes, I mean, passing the test, and then uh, matriculated through the program. So you had to learn how to think fast, see problems, solve them immediately, create harmony, but then also be internally consistent and work on an incredible deadline. And I think she really imbibed all of those traditions. Hmm. We're talking with the author, Victoria Kastner, about her new book, Julia Morgan, an intimate biography of the trailblazing architect. Here in the Bay Area, we are blessed with many Julia Morgan buildings, and we want to hear from you. What's your favorite Julia Morgan building? I already gave away my favorite room designed by Julia Morgan. It's the pool at the Berkeley City Club. Uh, but people, people, opinions will diverge. Um, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. So she comes through this grueling education. She comes back to the United States. And who are her clients going to be? Like, what are there are other female architects in California, but what are the things that they're hired to design? You're quite right. She was not the first one, and there were other or others, not many, but there were others. She was the first female architect to be licensed, officially licensed, and, and that happened two years after her return in March 1904 in the state of California. But what made her really different, Alexis, is that instead of building what most female architects of that time did, maybe kitchen remodels, a few houses, perhaps women's clubs, she did those things, but she also designed schools, churches, um, hotels uh, and massive estates, as you know, for William Randolph Hearst, as well as other clients. And so she competed in a man's world, and she was one of the, really a handful of architects in the Bay Area who had actually gotten a degree from the world's finest program. So she actually was meeting, um, you know, colleagues and clients at, at a, high, a high level. There are very few architects, as a matter of fact, in American history who've built on the scale that Julia Morgan did. Uh, They would be Stanford White and Richard Morris Hunt. He designed the Biltmore in North Carolina in Asheville and Stanford White, many great um, private estates on the East Coast. But she's decades younger than they are. And she's working in this, you know, Gilded Age style of of elegance, as well as designing things like the playhouse for the taxi driver's daughter. She got to know the taxi driver well when he drove her from San Luis Obispo train station to San Simeon back and forth, literally hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. So whatever she built, she put her whole uh, heart and attention into, and every project was equally important to her. And she also was uh, innovative with the new materials of the time, in particular reinforced concrete, yeah? 
That's very true. It was pioneered. I mean, I mean, you know, the Romans used it, but then it was forgotten for for millennia. It was pioneered really as um, as a structural material at the Ecole des Beaux Arts, and so she really did understand engineering. She didn't engineer all of her buildings, but she worked very closely with those who did, and she worked very hard in the beginning, as you mentioned, on El Campanile. That's the bell tower at Mills, the Oakland College that we uh, in the Bay Area know so well. It was seventy two feet high. It was still reinforced concrete. She finished it in nineteen o four. And that was among her earliest commissions. It was impressive then, but much more impressive two years later when it survived the 1906 earthquake without a single crack in it. Mm. And that made her a, a kind of a hot uh, architect at that time, right? Because people needed to reconstruct uh, an enormous portion of San Francisco. That is so true. Um, it, so uh, hundreds and hundreds of the, of the city were decimated, both by earthquake and by fire. And that included uh, Julia's office. She had been working for the architect who was building the uh, redesigned University of California, John Galen Howard. And, and with him, she moved to San Francisco. And her office was at uh, 456 Montgomery uh, in the first couple of years. And that was blown up, part of the dynamiting that happened to try to stop the fires that were ravaging the city. So she, in 1906, she lost all of her records and papers just soon after she had really started an independent practice. But she was hired because I think of, of El Campanile and its success to redesign the Fairmont Hotel on Knob Hill. It was a brand new building that had been really not only gutted by fire in the uh, post-earthquake, but its foundations had actually moved seven feet. And mm-hmm. it was a complete empty shell. And many people didn't think it could even be restored. Wow. But and she, she was built in it in a year, right? That's right. And she re-engineered it. It had already been designed. It was just weeks away from opening. So she re-engineered it. And that was one year to the day after the 06 earthquake, the first building to come back and a tremendous uh, success um, that made her quite well known among San Franciscans. Amazing. We're talking with Victoria Kastner. She's the author of a new book, Julia Morgan, an intimate biography of the trailblazing architect. And we're going to start taking some of your calls right after the break about what your favorite Julia Morgan building is. Numbers 866-733-6786 or the emails form at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with author Victoria Kastner about her new book, Julia Morgan, an intimate biography of the trailblazing architect. And we're talking with you about your favorite Julia Morgan buildings. Uh, Let's bring in our first caller, uh, Jamila in Berkeley. Welcome. Hi there. My name's Jamila. Um, 
I spent more than 10 years teaching water exercise in the Hearst Gymnasium at UC Berkeley campus. And the pool that we were able to use, there's actually three pools in that building, was only accessible through the women's locker room. So it ended up being a women's only class. And we found so much community and solace just being together over that time. And people in the class had been there many years before I became part of it. Um, we celebrated 80th birthdays, baby showers, all kinds of things. And I think it was really, truly in large part due to the fact that we were in this absolutely gorgeous kind of sacred space that Julia Morgan created. And I just wanted to ask the author if she had any sense of, um, I've heard that this building, Hearst Gymnasium, is actually slated for demolition. And I'm wondering if you have any knowledge of that and whether or not that's even legal, given that it's a historic um, building landmark. Yeah, we will try and answer that. Hold, hold that thought for one sec, though. I just want to know what you loved about the building itself. Like, what did you what did you think when you would go inside this thing? And what, what kind of caught your eye? Well, I mean, all of the details are absolutely gorgeous. And also the materials that were used. So the pool is made out of marble. And there are, like, sculptures around there that are um, cast, concrete. It's just not um, not a kind of environment that you find every day. I mean, it's very rare to find. Mm-hmm. And I think that it really had an impact on our community. You know, yeah. people just felt so happy to be there. It felt like a sanctuary. And even though it was just um, on Bancroft Way, there was a hedge around the front that just made it feel like we're in a private oasis. Mm. Just absolutely stunning. I love that. Sacred space, sanctuary, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Jamila. And um, Victoria, what do you know about the preservation or lack thereof of the, this gymnasium? Jamila, I'm so glad you brought up this building, especially as the uh, first one. It is so remarkable when you're in that pool, which just for uh, people who haven't seen photographs of it, resembles the um, outdoor pool at San Simeon because it's lined in the very same marbles. White with a green vein, green with a white vein. It has that same beautiful turquoise blue. It's very large, and when you're in it, you're looking. The campanile is looming over you, and you're, there's a kind of vast temple, as you say, with these beautiful cast stone maidens. It's a very special structure, and I'm sorry to say that Jamila is right. As of 2018, it has been marked by university planners as a building that they have targeted for demolition. Mm. And um, we're certainly working to resist that. And I would uh, refer uh, any listener who's interested to the Berkeley Architectural Heritage Association. That's B-A-H-A, Baja.org. They have a petition and they are filing suits because it's an incredible thing to think. It's not only a beautiful building, but it is the only building that was created to memorialize Phoebe Apperson Hearst, William Randolph Hearst's mother. She's the person who really funded the University of California's redesign. It's the only building that was designed jointly by Julia Morgan and Bernard Maybeck, her great mm. mentor. They worked on it together, and it's the only, and it was built um, as a gift to the university by William Randolph Hearst in honor of his mother. Uh, uh, Phoebe had died in 1919. It was finished in 19. 19- 27, and it is a very, very special structure. Yeah. Man, Jamila, great um, call. Thank you so much. And um, we now you know where to go for more information on that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Julia Morgan, the Californian. You know, you noted that the other big architects of the time were Eastern transplants. How do you think Julia's deep connection to this place actually shows up in her work? 
A lot of it is about how her buildings occupy the landscape. She was always thinking about the relationship between the interior and the exterior. Matter of fact, she loved to be landscape architect as well as architect. And she was extremely practical. Many of you maybe know she did a lot of buildings in the East Bay, especially in the years after the 06 quake. We would call them that first bay tradition, the the beautiful kind of brown shingle um, Mm -hmm. buildings that are simple uh, private uh, family homes. What she would often do, the lots were small, and so she would put the entrance not at the front of the house, but about midway down the house so that the front could just look straight out to the street and you'd walk down a path and then enter at the middle of the building. So if you turned one way, you went to the dining room. And if you turned the other way, you went into the living room. And her buildings were incredibly practical. If there were window boxes in them, then you could be sure that there'd be a spigot so that you could turn on and water the plants without having to haul a hose anywhere. (laughs) Um, She was always incredibly thoughtful about her clients. And interestingly, because she would build what they wanted in, um, you know, she was obscure for many years. And then when people started discovering her in the 1980s, really, she became known. People said, well, she didn't have a style. She was just a client's architect, you know, as if that was a bad thing, that she would do what you wanted. There was a couple who didn't like right angles in the East Bay, and she actually built a house for them that didn't have a any right angles. And there was a man who didn't like to get out of bed in the morning to turn on the heat. And she created a contraption so that he could still be under the covers in his bedroom and get the heater going. I mean, she would just do whatever would would honor the people who were using that building. And that was true if it was college girls, you know, uh, working out at the swimming pool or or William Randolph Hearst. It, whoever you were, you were important to her. Let's bring in Brian in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hi. Hi, uh, Victoria. It's Brian Kenny. How are you doing? Oh, hello, uh, Brian. Great book. Thank you. Um, I... I wanted to ask you if you knew what what the work how the work broke down on the Hearst Gymnasium for women, what part Maybeck did and what part Morgan did because there's some um, confusion about that. Well, like a lot of mentor mentee relationships, you know, when Julia was young, uh, Maybeck, I mean, he went to Paris because he was promoting Phoebe's architectural competition. Uh, Julia lived in an apartment beneath um, his. Ben and Annie Maybeck's own apartment in Paris. He encouraged her, you know. But as as they aged, she became kind of the his encourager. You know, he he closed his office because he was so eccentric. He uh, wasn't a big financial success in his time, and so he designed buildings out of her office. He worked out of her office, mm-hmm. and what he was really known for were these beautiful conceptual drawings. He would do them with pastels on brown paper, and he was excellent at creating that conception and, you know, um, thinking of things like these maidens that are on these beautiful um, urns, at, at, you know, that ornament the pool. But uh, we know that when the building opened, the grand opening was in 1927, and William Randolph Hearst, as the donor of the of the building, was there. When he asked Bernard Maybeck where the men's room was, uh, Maybeck couldn't tell him. <laughs> so when it comes to the practical side of three swimming pools and all these ancillary uh, support structures, Julia Morgan is definitely the person mm-hmm. who's dotting all I's and crossing mm-hmm. all T's. But they worked wonderfully well together. Oh, that's great. Um, let's bring in uh, Noah in Richmond who wants to talk about the Saratoga Foothill Club. Welcome, Noah. Hello, thanks for taking my call. Um, Yeah, I'm talking about the Saratoga Foothill Club in Saratoga, California, um, in the South Bay area near San Jose. And I'm calling because I'm actually getting married there next weekend. (laughs) Ah, congratulations. Um, Wonderful fiance, Annette. Thank you very much. 
And um, one of the reasons we chose the structure is it's actually where I went to my very first wedding as a three-year-old with my aunt and uncle as the ring bear. Um, and of course, it's also just a gorgeous, a gorgeous structure. You know, it's got this beautiful dark wood um, that creates a really cozy space inside, um, but also has these large windows that let you look out on a beautifully um, cared for garden and a trellis and courtyard. Um, it used to be a women's club. Now it's a more general uh, open club and venue, um, but it's, it's a really um, kind of, it's not grandiose. It's just a, this combination of, of cozy and open to the world yeah. that I love. Yeah. Oh, I love you phrasing it that way. No, it's one very large building with kind of an aisled corridor on one side uh, where, you know, you get mm-hmm. head, head back to the kitchen and the practical areas. Julia not only designed that lovely kind of shingle-styled arts and crafts building in 1913, but years later she also designed the Saratoga Federated Church up the hill. Many a bride and groom have been married there and then walked down to the Foothill Club uh, for their reception. And it is both of those buildings are beloved. And that is so typical of the buildings that Julia Morgan designed is that their users um, adore them and feel so personally connected. And I'm thrilled for you. Congratulations on your upcoming nuptials. That's a wonderful, that's a wonderful connection you'll always have with that building, which has been beautifully maintained. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing Thank you that. Thank so much. Yeah. Thanks, Noah. Um, Victoria, I wanted to uh, read you a comment from one of our listeners. Um, Did Julia Morgan ever talk to Hearst about the racist incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II? I read in the book about the Japanese American woman who had worked for her and Miss Morgan writing to the woman and her husband when they were sent to the Boston camp and Miss Morgan purchasing them a home in Monterey County after the war. That's all quite true. This was a woman named Sachi Oka whom uh, Julia hired when she thought she was a teenager. Um, she was uh, keeping a house, doing housekeeping for a um, family who lived on a larger home on the property, and Julia had bought herself a little hideaway, frankly, in, the, in, the, in 1934, because her health was fragile and she needed to be resting much more than she ever wanted to. And she ended up buying Saatchi um, a brand-new car, she uh, thought she would pick her up from the train station in Monterey, and, and Julia didn't drive. She said, your car's really old, and she bought her brand-new Pontiac. And then, as you say, she and her husband, Kazuo, were interned during the war, and Julia sent them things they needed in post in Arizona. And af- uh, after they got out in mid-war, um, they were going to move to Detroit, where they thought they'd get work with um, the auto industry. And Julia phoned Saatchi and said, I've bought you a house in Monterey near, near mine. Will you come home? And she gave Saatchi that house where Saatchi lived um, the rest of her life. And I don't know if she... Well, and of course, I'll just, just for context for listeners, yeah. you know, William Randolph Hearst newspapers are considered to have been a major engine of anti-Japanese sentiment, which is one reason why Carrie wanted to know, you know, given these two people, whether that was something that she approached uh, William Randolph Hearst with. Very good point. And I don't know if, if um, she did speak to him about that there... Uh, by that time, by, you know, the middle of the 1940s, her health had gotten so fragile that she, though her uh, handwriting is still on many of the drawings for San Simeon, where she worked for 28 years between 1919 and 1947, but there's much less correspondence. So I'm not aware mm. of that. I do know that Hearst um, uh, collected Japanese art, as did Julia, and Chinese art both. She gave the building that you first talked about, Alexis, the Berkeley City Club, whose magnificent pool that you referenced is on the cover of, of my uh, book. 
She gave the Berkeley City Club as a gift a fabulous Chinese painting, and William Randolph Hearst, in memory of his mother, gave it a beautiful Japanese shrine. Mm. Um, but I don't know if they ever had a conversation mm. a, a, about the treatment of the Japanese. Yeah. Let's bring in Jim in Sonoma, California. Welcome, Jim. Hi, uh, Julia. We used to work together years ago. Uh, Talk about, if you would, Wintune, and then Elsa Schilling's house at Lake Tahoe also has sort of a Wintune look to it. Yeah. What is what is Wintune? This one is near Mount Shasta? Yes, yes. and it's yeah. spelled W-Y-N-T-O-O-N, okay. and it was named for the native uh, people of that region who were renowned for their feather baskets, the Wintune. And uh, W.R.'s mother, Phoebe, had hired Maybeck, and in 1902 he finished a magnificent and huge a stone, really literally like a castle, like right out of Bavaria, um, a building on the McLeod River at the base of Mount Shasta. It um, burned to the ground in 1930, and then Julia redesigned a wind tune. And it's not something that's seen by the public, but um, the Hearst family members still use it. The Hearst Corporation uh, still hold uh, business meetings there. There are, It's a compound of along this rushing river in three separate parts. One is this beautiful Bavarian village with little fairy tales, um, like just some, something straight out of Munich, Cinderella House and Brown Bear House and, and Angel House. These are uh, charming structures. They're quite large, and they overhang, and their balconies, they overhang this rushing river. And um, as, as for the house in Lake Tahoe for Elsa Schilling, she was an heiress of the Schilling Spice Factory, and Julia met Elsa when, actually, they were both hospitalized. Julia for... Um, having a chronic ear infections, and Elsa had been in a horse riding accident. So that's when they actually met each other, sometime around 1930. But um, she designed a beautiful house for her in Lake Tahoe that is also kind of that um, Bavarian-looking. It has these fabulous uh, carved wood, uh, light wood interiors with arches and um, wonderful finish work inside. Mm. So um, it's it's interesting how many different styles uh, Julia Morgan was comfortable in. And I think she learned about that, too, as, uh, as having been a student at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, because she always studied the history of the past. Her buildings are very modern in a technological sense in terms of their infrastructure and functioning, but they are often garbed in this beautiful romantic language from every imaginable sort of past. Mm. And of course, we think of San Simeon, but there are many others as well. Yeah. Let's bring in Kate from Inverness, who got to live in a Julia Morgan home. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Um, I'm glad you brought up the simplicity because the house that I lived in was was five bedrooms, but it was very simply built. I love this the doorway on the side, but what I loved the most was uh, for a building designed by a woman. Uh, because it was a building designed by a woman, there was ample. Ample storage everywhere <laughs> built in. Um, what else in the design of the home? Was there anything in it that to you, you started to say to yourself, this is a Julia Morgan home and this is how I, why I think that or what makes me think that? The, the respectful use of wood everywhere on the exterior. Yes, it was shingles on the inside, it was mostly redwood, but it had been um, white, white, whitewashed um, somewhat. But it was still beautiful, beautiful wood everywhere. Mm. So nice. Thanks so much for that call, thanks, Kate. Thanks for sharing, Kate. You know, people who uh, are uh, have, have that privilege of living in Julia Morgan buildings or having done so talk of, about this incredible level of thoughtfulness and 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 
kind of anticipation of what of what a user would really need. And the wonderful thing about Julia Morgan Buildings is if they survived the end, you know, she designed a 700. It's an incredible number, but she did design that many buildings. Uh, Most of them in Northern California, nothing further east than Salt Lake City, but um, uh, but mostly in Northern California. But if they survived the 1960s and 70s, then they really haven't changed very much. That's true for her houses, and it's also true for the grand uh, YWCA's, of which she literally built dozens, Mm. and women's clubs and public buildings, some of which we've been discussing, because they worked so well. People might have extended the kitchen, added on a bathroom or a closet or something, but basically the houses, when they have survived, they really look pretty much the way they did when she finished them because they were so beautifully designed. Mm. We've got a bunch of different fave buildings coming through. <laughs> um, another favorite Julia Morgan building, the King's Daughter Home at 40th and Broadway in Oakland. Uh, Dan, Dan tweets to say, it's just such a surprise to come across this semi-hidden gem, which shows how active Ms. Morgan was locally. Daniel writes, my favorite Julia Morgan structure is around the house, corner from my house on Russian Hill. Remodeled, sadly and badly, by the recent owners, 1055 Green Street. Uh, Marina, actually another listener on Instagram writes, um, on Piedmont Ave, there's a Morgan building. And a listener says, I'm lucky to work in that spot. You really get the history of it. When we come back, we're going to talk about two other very important Morgan uh, buildings, Asilomar and Hearst Castle. We are talking with Victoria Kastner about her new book, Julia Morgan, an intimate biography of the trailblazing architect. And we are taking your questions and hearing about your favorite Julia Morgan buildings. You know, there are almost 700 of them scattered around the Bay Area. So give us a call. Favorite Julia Morgan building or questions you might have about them. Uh, The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. And the email, of course, is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. We're talking with author Victoria Kastner. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Victoria Kastner 
about Julia Morgan. She's got a new book out, beautifully illustrated. Uh, It's called An Intimate Biography of the Trailblazing Architect. It's out from Chronicle. We need to talk about Hearst Castle. Uh, It occupied a lot of Julia Morgan's time, Um, you know, hundreds of trips down to there from her uh, life up here in the Bay Area. How do you evaluate the sort of artistic merit of Hearst Castle, um, especially given just like all of the mythology around William Randolph Hearst and, and just the sheer kind of opulence and scale of the thing? It was a remarkable collaboration between client and architect, one of the longest ones in American history, actually. It went on for 28 years, the construction, and fortunately, it was very, very well documented. You know, there's a myth uh, that Julia had uh, burned her papers and that we will not know about her. The reason I wrote this book is that actually she saved um, literally thousands of letters, more than 2,000 that she exchanged just with William Randolph Hearst alone. And and this is a book not just about her buildings, but about her private life and new things that I discovered about her private life for the first time. She she had dealt with more adversities than I had realized and was more involved with caring for her family than I had realized, as well as all of the work that she did. But um, it, it is an amazing collaboration between these two people who on the surface seem very different. He's this lightning rod of controversy, this newspaper publisher, and she's as one of her um uh, employee said, you know, she had a low voice, a clear, direct gaze, a very, very small, about five foot two. But this person said, I've seen grown men tremble when she said, no, it won't do. <laughs> so she had a very um, equal relationship with with William Randolph Hearst. He admired and respected her and deferred to her decisions. She admired and respected him and would, you know, kind of steer him. Uh, but really, she was good at uh, depicting his taste. Obviously, it's very different from anything else she did, but it is spectacular. And together, these two, architect and client, were able to reach um, levels of creativity um, that they far greater than they did apart. And actually, neither one of them had a relationship that was that approximated this one in closeness in their lives. They weren't uh, romantically involved. And indeed, Julia Morgan wasn't romantically involved with anyone, I don't believe. That we know of. That we know of. We'll never know a person's entire private life. But I have transcribed with my assistant 800,000 words of her letters and um, to her and from her. And there's no long-term roommates. There's no traveling companions of either gender. You know, really, her, her romance was with architecture, you know. And one of, one of the um, employees who worked on Hearst Castle and many of her other buildings, a, a Berkeley engineer named Walter Stahlberg, said about her with WR, when those two bent over a drawing, the rest of us could have been 100 miles away. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Sam in San Francisco has a question about project management at San Simeon. Hi, I'm so glad I get to ask this burning question I've had forever. Um, So there was obviously no ATMs. There was very little uh, community in and around San Sibian. How the heck did she get these artisans in, paid the materials in, up that hill? I just, I cannot wrap around you know, the idea that in my head, the idea of the practical day-to-day function of making this job site work. Uh, if you could fill me in on some of that, I would be <laughs> so appreciative. 
right. And Victoria Kastner, of course, was the official historian of Hearst Castle for 30 years. So I think you have, if anyone knows, Victoria. Yes, and Sam, I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, this year is uh, Julia Morgan's sesquicentennial. She was born 150 years ago uh, on the 20th of January of 1872. That reminds us how long ago we're talking about this. In 1919, and the technology of the time was when she began it. It was job number 503. But the incredible thing is that she would have designed hundreds of additional buildings while San Simeon was underway throughout the 20s and the 30s, and that when she began it, she couldn't vote in a federal presidential election. Mm. Women didn't have the vote. So it was remarkable. Now, she did have to build the road. The first time she went down there was by train, and Hearst expected her to ride horseback to the top of the hill. She looked at him. She said, I'm 47. I don't ride. That's not happening. So actually what they did, the first trip, and fortunately the taxi driver at the time documented this. His name is Steve Zagar, was that WR got on the horse at the bottom of the hill, and Julia stayed in the back seat of the taxi, and they called a couple of um, cowboys over, and he gunned the engine, and he drove it from sea level straight up to 1,600 feet at the top of that hill, avoiding these big rocks, and the cowboys rode alongside and roped the bumper. <laughs> so this is like, it's not close now, but I mean, it was the backside of beyond in 1919. They had to generate their own power, which they did hydroelectrically. She put the water, uh, the wiring all underground, you know, so it's very technologically advanced. Now, she had a crew that she took with her on jobs, generally speaking, and, and um, she brought a lot of them down to San Simeon. And then she wrote to WR, she said, uh, you know, he was paying higher than union wages. And she said, you know, um, I'm hiring countrymen as fast as I can because the men... I brought down, said the wages were good, the food was fine, but they didn't like being so far away from things. So actually the construction, which could be crews as many as 90 men on the hilltop, you know, uh, were local people. But the artisans were largely from the Bay Area. And that made sense because during the week, Julia was um, running her business at the Merchants Exchange building at 465 California Street. She opened that as her office in 1907 and, and remained there in, uh, as, as her office until 1950. So the wood carving was being done on Polk Street and the great tile setting of the indoor pool, which is known as the Roman pool, the one with the blue and gold glass mm -hmm. tiles. Those tiles of one-inch square mosaic glass were being laid out at the Club Fagazi on Green Street, if you've ever seen Beach Bank at Babylon. You know, Julia was in the Bay Area during the week, and mm -hmm. so she could um, check in with the artisans. The tile, uh, the beautiful uh, polychrome, you know, uh, fired ceramic tiles, those were being made at California Fayance on San Pablo Avenue in Berkeley. Man, so interesting. Such, such a deep connection to that place here that I, I, I had no idea about. Um, thanks so much for that uh, question, Sam. A uh, couple of comments to get to. Dan writes, we love College Avenue Presbyterian Church, the 1917 Julia Morgan Church on College Avenue in Rockridge, just up from the BART station. So simple and peaceful. We're restoring the building and hope to remove the unused pipe organ that was added later. If someone took the organ, it would uncover a wall of Julia-designed windows that haven't been seen in 100 years. So if you're out there and you're looking for a pipe organ... Uh, get in touch with the College Avenue Presbyterian <laughs> Church. Um, Lanny tweets, um, when I was young, family friends lived in a Julia Morgan house in the Oakland Hills, and my aunt and uncle lived in a Bernard Maybeck not far away. Sadly, both were lost in the Oakland Hills fire. Um, there was, uh, we had an amazing comment about uh, suffragettes, but now I can't find it. Um, let's uh, go back to the phones um let's bring in donna hi 
Um, this is Donna. Um, my husband and I, when we got engaged, um, I gave him a list of possible wedding venues. The list was full of Morgans and Maybachs <laughs> because we both love their work. And my husband has his degree in architecture. He never got to actually work in architecture much, but that was what his degree was in. So we toured around the Bay Area to all of these gorgeous buildings. Mm. Um, we settled on the Sausalito Women's Club. The day we went to, to look at this place was rainy, foggy, cold, couldn't see past the windows. But it was gorgeous. Mm. And it was like, this would be a fabulous place for our wedding if the weather's like this or if it's sunny. It turned out to be a gorgeous day. But it was it was just magical. That building is so beautiful. I've gone to a wedding there, too, and it is just, man, you just, <laughs> you never want to leave that building. It's just perfect. It's no, very special. No, it, over, oh, it overlooks the bay and has fabulous views. It looks like it's a rectangle, but actually it has about 18 sides and was very carefully uh, designed by Julia to fit onto a complicated lot. But again, it's one of those beloved women's clubs. And just to comment quickly on the other thing, she did um, uh, back women's suffrage and actually spoke about it publicly. There's this myth, as I said, that she burned her papers and also a myth that she uh, never took any public positions. It is true that she didn't like to be interviewed, and she did say that her building should speak. That was the way she preferred it, not uh, she didn't like to write about architecture, lecture about it. You know, she just liked to design it. But she definitely backed um, women's suffrage and took uh, public positions on it. Mm. Trish writes, at Cal, Julia Morgan was the sorority sister of suffragette Lucretia Watson, who married my grandfather, Benjamin Grant Taylor. As a wedding gift for Lucretia and B. Grant, Julia designed a beautiful craftsman home for them. The home was built in Saratoga, and when my grandfather became clerk of the California State Supreme Court and worked in San Francisco, it served as the family's weekend home. About 25 years ago, it was sold, and the purchasers had it updated a bit and moved slightly to accommodate subdivision of the property, but nothing has changed its original beauty. Julia Morgan truly was ahead of her time in so many ways. Uh, Steve in Berkeley actually has another way that she was perhaps ahead of her time. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hi, thank you for uh, having me. I'm, uh, I live in a Julia Morgan since uh, 1980 in Berkeley, <laughs> and we're surrounded by several Julia Morgans. I was going to say that one of the uh, lesser appreciated aspects of her uh, houses, which are almost always warm and calming, um, are the use of sustainability. She has these... Um, I guess you call it climate responsive design. So she's using the sun's energy to keep the building comfortable and naturally ventilated. And in my house, in particularly, there's a veranda which which acts as sort of a a natural um, you know air conditioner in a way. Um, one of the quirkier things, uh, as many of us have had to redesigns on our Julia Morgans, is that all her windows open in. Which is kind of annoying, but <laughs> she thought it would make her... it easier to clean. That was why. <laughs> oh, that... Okay, that's so interesting. Anyway, uh, any comments on these these breezeways and verandas that kind of connect the indoors to the outdoors? Oh yes, she was so Thanks, known Steve. for this, Steve. Thank you, and that's true at San Simeon as well. You know, there always are breezeways, and um, the the buildings uh, retain both the cool and the heat beautifully. Uh, the, you know, she was so practical in those ways. And I believe that's one of the reasons 
why in 2014, after you know a really a long period of of, of being almost forgotten, uh, the American Institute of Architects uh, posthumously awarded her mm-hmm. uh, their highest honor, which was the gold medal. I was one of the first the, woman in 2014. I just wanted that's to, right, no, and the first woman in a hundred years to receive that honor. I was one of the people on the nominating committee, and I have to say, I really didn't think that we would succeed because I think she's been. Um, it, you know, minimized. I, I don't think people had thought about things that, that your listeners are, are being so astute about bringing up about sustainability and, and appropriateness and also integrating, uh, you know, she, she loved not, uh, she loved not working with interior designers. She was the landscape architect mm-hmm. and the interior designer at Hearst Castle herself, mm-hmm. just she and WR. They, they didn't have anyone else that they were really working with day to day. So she loved to take on all of these roles because she felt that it was all the same. And I know you mentioned, Alexis, that we were going to talk about Asilomar. I just want to say that she did dozens of YWCAs, and these were very important for young women who were entering the workforce for the first time and, and uh, needed a safe place to live that wasn't an unsavory boarding house full of traveling salesmen, you know. And she designed dozens of them, but she also designed this beautiful compound where they would earn money every year to buy, you know, bake sales and jumble sales and hay rides and things, to go for 10 days to Asilomar, which, as your listeners know, is in Pacific Grove, south of Monterey. It means refuge by the sea. And Julia designed uh, more than a dozen buildings there. Uh, but when she created her first YWCA, which was the one in Oakland um, that uh, still uh, exists today on Webster Street, it was in 1913, it was based on a, a 16th century Renaissance palace in Italy, specifically. And she knew so well how to take historic references and integrate them into modern buildings. No one had ever considered that these young working women should be honored in that way. When she designed the residence, which is her eight-story high um, YWCA that is, is today still um, you know, housing in San Francisco, um, she designed little dining rooms so that the girls wouldn't have to all eat in one cafeteria together if they had private friends. And she was told, why do you, why do, you do that? These are just for working girls. And she said, that's just the reason. Mm-hmm. She designed the Chinese YWCA, uh, which is now the Chinese Historical Society in San Francisco. She designed the Japanese YWCA. She incorporated um, beautiful uh, uh, cultural references, to, and, and she donated her um, services on at least one of those two, saying in honor of the contributions that these cultures have made to our city. She designed the NABE, N-A-B-E, on, in Potrero Hills District, which was for the Russian uh, emigres. So um, she, she designed um, El Emanuel, which is now the Zen Center on Laguna and Page in San Francisco, mm-hmm. but was a special residence for uh, young Jewish women. Wh- whomever she worked for, she honored and often she did it without a profit. She would work for cost or she would reduce her fee um, because um, she really loved what she did and she loved the people for whom she worked. Uh, Heidi just wants to make sure civil engineers get their props out there. Heidi writes, I'm curious why you focus on calling Julia Morgan an architect versus civil engineer. I'm a female civil engineer, so I'm curious about this. I appreciate her architecture skills, but it sounds like her engineering skills were amazing too. Well, Heidi, I would agree. Now, um, what happened was that she did study civil engineering at Cal and then really uh, advanced her um, knowledge at the Ecole du Bazaar. But except for um, doing the engineering and the reconstruction of the Fairmont Hotel, as time went on, she worked closely with consulting civil engineers. Walter Stahlberg of Berkeley was one. 
he's the one who engineered the building that you've mentioned, Alexis, the Berkeley, uh, what was called then the Berkeley Women's City Club. It's now the Berkeley City Club, which has on its first floor this magnificent swimming pool with arches and perforated windows, the Gothic-style windows. What's interesting about it is it's the first floor of a six-story high concrete structure. It's 46,000 square feet. So effectively, it would be like balancing a, you know, a pile of bricks on a doily as far as trying to get the structure to support that weight when it was such a delicate uh, first story. Um, and she worked with um, a firm called Earl and Wright in San Francisco and a man named Walter Huber. Maybe many of you in the Bay Area know about Huber Park um, in El Cerrito Hills, which was uh, named in his honor. But so she consulted with engineers later on in her career rather than engineering the buildings herself throughout her career. Yeah. But it was her knowledge of the technology of architecture that made her so effective. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure... People uh, also know Leslie writes in to say, I love Chapel of the Chimes on Piedmont in Oakland. And Marianne writes, Julie Morgan designed the mausoleum just outside the gates of Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland. Uh, we don't need to comment on it. It's just so beautiful. <laughs> um, and That's I, one of my favorites, yeah. Leslie, for sure. A magnificent building. And folks, it's, a, it's a, a columbarium, a mausoleum for crematory urns. It's open Monday through Friday. And if you have an opportunity, it's in North Oakland near the Mountain View Cemetery. Go. It is the most radiant, lyrical consoling and calming structure. It's, it's magnificent. Yeah. You know, what do you think people should take away from Julia Morgan's legacy just with our last few seconds of the show? Well, having transcribed her letters, you know, to and from, we can actually do word searches and Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, where her archives reside is going to be posting these transcriptions so that scholars will be able to study her anywhere in the world. But since we can do word searches, we can look for words and know Two occur very seldom, and those words are can't and cannot. (laughs) She really did not think things were impossible. She had an endless sense of dedication to architecture, to beauty, to clients. And um, it is true that her buildings speak for her, but it's also true that she provides with her strength and perspicacity, she gives us a lot of lessons in how not to be defined by limiting circumstances, how to live a full life and follow your truth even when it's difficult. Mm. Thank you so much for this book and this hour. Victoria Kastner's new book is Julia Morgan, An Intimate Biography of the Trailblazing Architect. Thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure, Alexis. Thank you. And thank you, all of you listeners. The phones were on fire. That was incredible. So many comments. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them. We got to as many as we could, and they were awesome. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.